5 o'clock, you're listening to KZMU Moab. It's time for This Week in Moab. I'm your host today, Christy Williams-Stunton, and I am so thrilled to be in Moab right now. It is just the prime of what we call Indian summer. We just call it uh, life on the Colorado Plateau in autumn, a glorious thing. Thanks for staying tuned. Speaking of glorious things today, we talk about the shimmering extra of light on the water, the shimmering extra of casting our goods out into the network of nonprofit Wabi Sabi. We'll talk about that in a minute with wonderful executive director of Wabi Sabi, Leah Bear. And then we'll wind up with uh, Marky Swenson from Grand County Hospice. So weaving all of that together, we now embark on this week in Moab on a, on a wonderful romp of conversation with Leah Bear. Leah, thank you so much for coming up to KZMU today. I heard it was actually your first time up here. It sure was, and I'm happy to be here. Ah, so (laughs) glad to have you here. Now, you've been on the job as the ED of Wabi Sabi for about a year? Yep, September 1st of 2022. Wow, okay, and so tell me about your relationship with Moab before you got here and after. Yeah, Um, so I've been based out of Moab for um, approximately five years. Um, I was managing Moab Gear Trader during my time here. Oh, okay. But uh, for the most part, I had a five-year goal to hike the three longest trails in America, being the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. So I wrapped that goal up in 2021 and knew that I wanted to call Moab home for good and be a part of the community. You know, this community goes absolutely unmatched, and um, and what better way to do it than Wabi Sabi? Well, it sure holds the heart of an awful lot of the community. It holds very special space. Starting however many years ago, uh, I don't remember the year now. I'm going to say it's been, oh, man, in a little rental home mm-hmm. across from uh, Moab Multicultural Center. And I was so pleased, everyone. It was just like, you know, water to the flower. And the idea is so elegant that the proceeds above and beyond the overhead would go to a variety of nonprofits. It's helped nonprofits for 22 years now with this model and made it possible for people to just forget it about the yard sale and not have to go through the 25 cents on whatever and think that they're helping, which they have been. So here we are at this point in time with Dear Wabi Sabi, 22 years in, and we hear these rumblings that trouble, trouble is on the horizon because rent. And not just, you know, making it, everybody has trouble making it, but you guys, uh, it's being sold. Is this right? Is the building? Correct. It was already sold, but we still are on a a two-year lease. So we do have until, in the location we're currently in, until March of 2025. And so people that don't know the current location, it is on 1st South, 2nd South, 1st South. 100 South. 1st South, almost Maine. 
um, used to be a gym, Moab City mm-hmm. gym, and so great. It's not immediate, but a year in housing terms is tough because tell us what you're up against. Well, we all know Moab, right? <laughs> so securing a location is our biggest hurdle right now. Um, we're definitely confident that we can do so. Um, there's some strategic planning that obviously has to be involved in it, but um, we are looking at every option possible. Um, and we do have um, a couple places uh, that we, some leads as far as um, locations that we might be able to secure, but I don't want to ex- uh, expose too much until we actually um, feel like those are promising options. Sure, we're in that fluid zone between desire and, you know, the reaching and the actual grasping. It's uh, quite a thing. You got it. Uh, however, we can easily speak in dream terms as the ED and you're thinking, gosh, you know what would be great? What do you think? Ugh, central, centrally located. Um, as I was mentioning earlier to you, well, a third of our patrons uh, come to Wabi by bike, walking, or wheelchair. So central location is very important, especially for our underserved population within the community. Um, we'd like to keep our square footage. So we are um, approximately 10,000 now. Um, parking, you know, all the, all the obstacles that we have everywhere in Moab, right? Um, but that would be ideal for the future of Wabi. And it's not the kind of place where there's any old weld shop, uh, workshop, mechanic shop. Things have shifted in terms of the use of some of the warehouse uh, real estate that once did exist. Correct. And there were two, the two stores at once. Um, we would like to keep it as one building. Um, one location, unlike it has been in the past. Um, and then, you know, donations are a big part of it. So that model and that setup right there, if we were to secure property, we're looking at going the metal building route, and that would allow us a large garage space um, and maybe even a ramp. And then also we have to think about our bulk. So we right now we have four 20-foot containers on the side of the current Wabi location, um, and that allows us to save approximately 120 pounds of textiles out of the landfill each year. You probably have an awful lot of data about the good that this model of kind of recirculating, upcycling, not throwing away has brought to the community while you're making your plea to uh, supporters of all kinds. Throw us us a little bit about uh, how important thrifting locally still is to the community oh absolutely especially within a community of our size um i mean just if you're going to get an outfit for a work interview where are you going to go you know a pillow just the simple items that people don't think about um and that is for you know your everyday customer also our voucher program so we give last year we gave sixty three thousand dollars worth of material goods in voucher form um these are This is a a program where you can go to one of the issuing agencies and receive a personal voucher, a move-in voucher, um, whatnot, to uh, get the material goods that you may need. What if you need that alarm clock for, you know, your job that you're just starting the next day um, and whatnot. So that, and also where do people put stuff? You know, if you need to get rid, like you're doing spring cleaning, you're cleaning out your garage, like where do these items go? Um, And I'm proud to say that we've, within the past year, have started um, taking in furniture donations. Not everything, we have to be selective due to our 
um, real estate size, but still at the same time, where do other people take that? You know, do you want to make the drive all the way to Grand Junction? Like most people, I think Moab history, they put a free sign on it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're not wrong. And leave it outside <laughs> or take it to the dump. Yep, exactly. If nobody picks it up, if it's not an outside couch, then you know. Right. The life cycle of a desert uh, piece of furniture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we'd prefer the reduce or reuse yes, model. Absolutely. And so then that means, yeah, room is a thing. Are you considering that you may have to do a little bit of downsizing if you can't find 10,000 feet? Don't say that feet? word. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yes. I um, mean, capacity, the, the need is there. So right. that must be painful to contemplate. Absolutely. But change is inevitable. And um, I think we've learned to accept that by now. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you know, it's where we might have to downsize with square footage. We might have to um, change, you know, location might not be so central anymore. But if we can stand behind Wabi's mission and continue to do what Wabi's done the last 22 years, then so be it. That's what we'll do. So it must be commercially zoned. That Correct. does not yet rule out um, land or houses that are within the zone if they are zoned appropriately there there might even still be a few large houses that are both I don't I don't even know but if you are listening and you're like what's the thing I can do to be a philanthropist without having to make two billion dollars and move to LA there is a simple way you can think about your property as a a fountain of good for the nonprofit network that might be maybe yeah if people are if people are hip to a deal for wabi sabi where where can they get a hold of you um on our website um is all the contact information um they can also swing by the store i pretty much live there in the offices at front so (laughs) please come see me but like i said we are looking at (laughs) every option possible so um yeah, any any news is good news as far as I'm concerned right now. Tell you what, let's end on a sweet note with uh, some stories about the nonprofit partners. You you go through a process of selecting them over time. Casey Mew has long been one of the recipients, and now you know we were there for so long, and I I can't remember, but thousands of dollars, thousands of mm-hmm. dollars to Casey Mew. So, on behalf of the organization, thank you for that, Wabi Sabi. And all of the people who, you know, shop there for, you know, all the reasons it's good. Who are the partners today? Um, also, can I just throw in something real quick before I go through those? Yeah. Um, uh, our applications for any nonprofit that has not received the email or is interested, because you know how Moab is, we have so many nonprofits popping up. Mm-hmm. Um, the deadline is November 27th. And again, you can reach out to... Um, me or within the store and we'll get you that information so because we are encouraging all the nonprofit nonprofits in Moab to apply for this next year's um, partnership well it sure probably goes without saying that all those nonprofit partners throughout time and today really empathize and can understand about the square footage desires and the uh, you know struggle to make it float right it could be that they also know if, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a barn. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Like, a barn would fit Wabi. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just might. 
Um, let's make it happen, Moab. Get a hold of Leah Bear, the ED of Wabi Sabi, the nonprofit network that you know and love for all the threads. And now, uh, where couches go for palliative care, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can catch some deals, huh? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. All right. I don't know if there's anything else to add. A message of hope and peace for me, Leah. That's what we need. Yes. Can, thank you. Yeah. Um, and then can I just touch on the events that we have? So we're really excited about this Saturday. We have Fall Fest coming up 11 to 4 in front of Wabi. It's actually going to be the entire street of 100 South. Um, so please come on out. We have 13 nonprofits, three different bands. Actually, I think as of today, that's four different bands. Um Food trucks, uh, costume making, free costume making, by the way. All ages are encouraged to attend. Um, fitting rooms, like, it's just going to be a good old time. So This is for Halloween? Um, it's just Fall Fest. It's really just to collaborate with our nonprofit community partners and bring the com- whole community together. And um, all the nonprofit partners will be there? Um, so our community partners, which is... Uh, um, Numerous different nonprofits, not yeah. just our token partners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, correct. Um, and 98 Center will also be having cocktails and mocktails and a beer garden and um, underdogs bringing the puppies. So, yeah, we hope to see everyone there. Bespoke Wabi Sabi cocktails, most likely, if I know uh, 98. And again, the date and time. The 28th, this Saturday. Oh. And that's going to start at 11 a.m. How so, perfect. Yep. Way to bring it back around, Leah. Thank you very much for those details one last thing is thanksgiving so the community staple is that happening it's happening we're doing it (laughs) yeah so i mean the last three years it hasn't been done due to obviously covid um and last year it was kind of on the fence and then we were fortunate enough to be able to deliver 275 meals um with the help of synergy and um canyon steak and waffle and then with uh, Thanksgiving, we are looking to feed 800 plus again at the Grand Center. So it's going to start at 12. We hope to see everyone there. Um, come fill your bellies. Leah, I, I just want to call the whole listening audience right now to just uh, aim their sights at you with warmth and encouragement for the rest of the year. May Robbie find their home. Thanks for leading the ship. Thank you so much. Yeah, talking to us today. Wonderful stuff. Okay, Wabi Sabi. And uh, what was the number down there? Do you guys do phones still down there? Do you you have a landline? Uh, You can call my personal. It's 904-312-2241. So good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so 518, you're listening to KZMU. That's This Week in Moab. What a delight to talk to Leah. We're going to turn now... uh, I I promised you a fluid conversation, and I meant it. We're going to talk right now uh, about water. We're going to go downstream a little bit and uh, turn to a conversation about water in the West right here on This Week in Moab. I'm your host, Christy. John Weisheit is an environmental activist and river guide in Moab who has criticized water managers for failing to address the West's chronic water deficit despite years of warnings. We catch up with him today. He's been featured in Mother Jones magazine recently and has lots to say uh, both locally and regionally about where we are right now about the topic of water that concerns us all. John, thank you for talking to us today. Well, you're very welcome. I, I'm going to um, 
get into a building. There's I'm outside enjoying a wonderful day in Denver, and there's two helicopters. Can are they coming through? Uh, I don't hear them, and I'm outside on my porch on another beautiful day in Moab, Utah today. It's nice and quiet in Castle Valley, I think. Well, sorry for that distraction. It's quite all right. So, so yeah, um, thank you very much for the accolades. Um, but um, I'm here to tell you that the scientists were the first ones to recognize this problem. And it's kind of disheartening that um, the science community needs environmental activists to get their message across. But I'm more than happy to play that role. <laughs> So, yeah, this this is an issue we knew was coming. Um, and actually, speaking of science, um, the Scripps Institute uh, in 1983 suggested that we start adapting to the climate of the future. And that didn't go over too well because in 1983, that was the year all the reservoirs were filling to the brim. And there were emergency releases from Glen Canyon Dam and... Bureau of Reclamation almost broke their prize ban. And so, you know, people were like, "How? Could, why should we prepare for a drier future? We're, we're releasing so much water into the Gulf of California at the present time. But all the predictions in that paper, by the way, that was written by the National Academy of Sciences, and everything that they said in that paper is true. It came, it did come. And um, it's not over with yet. The, the next big uh, surprise, if you want to call it that, is going to be sea level rise. And we're starting to see that. And Antarctica is taking uh, the lead in a lot of news stories right now because the ice shelves are mobilized. And that means continental ice is going to be drifting into the ocean, melting and rising. Our sea levels, see, you know, it's a shame we didn't take care of this. 40 years ago because we'd be 40 years ahead of the, the, the eight ball but so to make changes in the middle of a crisis uh, that's not a good position to be in and that's exactly where we're at a new survey from uh, utah state university says that around 55 percent of utahns are very concerned uh, for lack of water throughout the state. And meanwhile, the same survey says only a fraction of the Utahns, 14%, believe elected officials are doing enough to address the issue. Some say even capable enough, given the disarray uh, federally, for doing anything about it. Uh, we don't like to be a downer here at this week in Moab, but it is dire. Uh, so, if so many Utahns are very concerned and our mechanisms for addressing it are in disarray, um, give us a flavor about what the kind of popular movements are to address the issue. Um, well, boy, Christy, you just hit the target. Um, thank you for this question. So. The reason why I think people know climate change is, is part of our future now. And whether it's a majority or a minority doesn't really matter. You know, the, the biggest thing that I think that shows the need for action is sea level rise, but also the opposite of that, which is diminishing levels in 
basins like the Great Salt Lake Reservoirs, like Lake Powell and Lake Mead, you know, so the writing's on the wall. But, which means we need to make changes, and that's why we aren't accepting climate change. It's not because it's not real. It's because we have to change our lifestyles, and people don't want to do that. But that's what climate adaptation is. And, you know, if, if we don't, it's going, let's put it this way, if we do nothing, it's going to be worse. So we have to do something to make it better, to make it more acceptable. And it means making some sacrifices, because we didn't make these 40 years ago when it was timely. So now we have to do double duty. And so, you know, in a way, we deserve this calamity, because we didn't properly prepare for it. And so, you know, um, so we need to get off our political bandstands. We need to think, forget about the comforts of life, because those, you know, that's not the way it's going to be anymore. We have to make some hard choices. And the more we delay, the worse it's going to be, the more uncomfortable it's going to be. But you know what? There's a lot of historians that have said that this is actually a good problem to have. Because, it, you know, this is how you, it's no, it can't be done by a single person. It can't be done by a government agency. It has to be done collectively by, by us. This actually could be a unifying thing. It should bind us together. And kind of like what we saw when people mobilized in world, when the fascist uh, empires were coming forward from Germany um, and Japan and Italy. You know, we, we rose up to that. And we were reluctant at first until it became absolutely urgent. And then we, we did. And, and we, it was an amazing accomplishment by the free world nation. So if we can, in other words, we've already done it. And we can do it again. So let's get, let's roll up our sleeves and let's do it. Okay, so then if you were going all the way out to the ideology of fascism, are we then grappling with late-stage capitalism? Yeah, well, oh, well, yes. That's that because capitalism is dependent on natural resources, which are no longer abundant, obviously. Uh, without water, you can't produce electricity. Without water, you can't make steel. You know, water is fundamental. And so this is going to hurt capital markets. And the economy is going to change. But that doesn't mean it's bad. We've changed our economies. Our, our, let's remind ourselves that the economy we had before included slavery. And we got through that. It was tough. And a lot of people lost their lives. We're still fighting it in many ways. But, you know, so we have shouldn't be afraid of change. We should be happy about change. It, it's, it's part of our, it's just what human life is. Hmm. Well, as we evolve into a world that is almost beyond comprehension when we're talking about the natural world that we are a part of, uh, it kind of makes me want to revisit the man-made engineering of uh, the dam that is closest to us. And I want you to talk a little bit about another major terrifying bummer, and that's Deadpool. Talk to us a little bit about <laughs> Lake Powell and what that means for utilities. 
people. Well, yeah, Deadpool is bad because the lower basin in Mexico require a tremendous amount of water, and Deadpool only has two million acre feet in it, and it's below the level of the intakes, and it's about to be completely compromised by sediment. Um, it's at the bottom of the bathtub, and that sediment from the San Juan River, the Colorado, is is starting to enter the uh, Deadpool area as, as I speak. And so, um, in other words, these, in fact, you can tell by the way the engineers built Glen Canyon Dam that it was never meant to go empty. Because if you'll notice, the intakes in Glen Canyon Dam are horizontal, whereas the intakes at Lake Mead Hoover Dam are vertical. There's four big towers that are standing tall like the Empire State Building in Lake, Lake Mead, which gives them an advantage at operating at lower elevations. But since Glen Canyon Dam's intakes are horizontal, they're fixed. They can't be adjusted. And that's they built it that way because they never thought it would ever happen, but it did. And so, in other words, our engineering, we're stuck with bad engineering. And it's, that dam is not going to get us through climate change. It's just not. It's not built to do that. It's built on a fixed hydrology that doesn't exist except on paper. Mm. And so then it seems like it's not such a bad idea to uh, just let the water loose so it doesn't become stagnant and all that. Am I following Yes, yeah, you, it's an impediment to the law of the river. Nobody wants to change the law of the river, so that means you have to change the infrastructure. So it's a no-brainer. I mean, they're going to do this, whether I, whether activists ask for it or not. And what does that look like, do you think? Uh, decommissioning and blowing some holes in the uh, cork there. Paint, paint, well, yeah, paint me a um, picture about how much well, water, what does that look like for the people downstream? Well, there's a famous saying, it's the Bureau of Heritage. It's I love this saying, it's my favorite. Um, the Bureau of Reclamation can only manage little droughts and little floods. When the big ones arrive, the system will fail. And we've already, you know, we have already, we almost saw this in 1983 when the spillways broke at Glen Canyon Dam, and now we saw it in 2023 when they had to release reservoir water from upstream to maintain the levels to make it even operational and safe. And so we've already that fulfillment of the prophecy I just uttered is, has already happened. And was that prophecy from David Brower, or...? <laughs> Actually, I heard it from Patty Limerick in 2007 at um, a conference at the Stegner Center at the University of Utah. Mm. And there were like 30 Bureau of Reclamation employees in the room that day. So there was a pretty gutsy move. Unfortunately, her talk was recorded, but her that saying was not. So that's yeah. unfortunate. Well, it lives on today. So uh, little little fluctuations we can weather the big ones um here we are and so you're calling it a no-brainer to decommission the dam um i can only imagine what lawmakers are saying about such a plan 
yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go oh, ahead. no. I just, I was trying to lead you into telling us more about the political tenor of the time as an activist working on water issues broadly. Well, yeah, you know, it is true that activists in the 1950s, and you named who that was, it was David Brower, said this is a bad idea. But somebody, a political, an attorney, a former Secretary of the Interior, an assistant that is, said the same thing. His name was Northcutt Ely. And he said, you can, you're going to build this dam and, you're, and you know, it'll work until it doesn't when demand matches supply. And then it's going to be an empty reservoir. I mean, he said this, he said it even before Brower did. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, so they known this. They just, you know, why was Glen Canyon Dam? To pay the bills, because it's not a, it's not a storage facility. It's a, it's a energy developer. It's hydropower. That's why it was built. And when you're mentioning power, I think I read uh, in that same study through USU Land Water Air Institute that uh, uh, 53% of all Utah's power is still currently being produced by coal-powered plants. Yes, that's true. Hydropower is a, it's actually getting less every decade. And especially when you have reservoirs going empty. So hydropower only works when you have water. But water has senior rights to agriculture and municipalities and tribes. And a lot of that goes to farmers. But um, so in other words, it's not, even though it was built to pay the bills, in other words, to, to pay back the treasury for the cost of Glen Canyon Dam. You know, if it was a revenue stream through hydropower. So they're not going to be able to pay these bills mm. in the future. So, uh, in other words, we we have something has to change. And what's it going to be? I have also read that there are some pretty big conservational numbers that can be gained by individuals even though we don't like to put all the responsibility on individual consumers because of the kind of hmm, economics you've just outlined. But uh, I I have read that there is an awful lot that homeowners can do to make a difference. So are you uh, prepared to throw a few lights on the subject about what is in our capacity, or must we simply... Uh, continue to suffer with feeling powerless here? (laughs) Well, another excellent question, and it's usually not answered correctly. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So, um, conservation is, uh, if you say what's being saved, whether it be water or energy, and store it, for an emergency, that that's one form of conservation. The other form of conservation is, is I'm going to reduce my consumption so ten more people can move into my neighborhood, and then the the savings actually becomes part of their consumption. In other words, it's just a trans. It's not really. I don't know why they call it conservation. It's just transfer of a resource from one person to another. So. I think we need to understand when, when people say savings and say conservation, the next question has to be, but yeah, where is it going afterwards? Is it going to be consumed by another user? If it is, then that's not really savings or lowering consumption. You're just transferring it. 
And that's what's going up. So every time Las Vegas pulls out a lawn, they're letting somebody else move into the neighborhood. That's what they're doing. So it's not really savings. It's a transfer. So that that language creeped into our intellect. It's, and I think people need to understand that it, it's kind of a clever deception, quite frankly. Then let me circle back and ask again, what does consuming less look like? I mean, I get it about golf courses, but we'll all still need to eat. Yes, and we'll, as the world gets warmer, we would like to have more shade. <laughs> and the grass does cool things down. So, you know, we have to think about what conservation is. And like, you know, I, we, I've said this a million times. I think I'll say it one more time. We don't, I think Edward Abbey said it first, we don't have a water problem. We have a planning and zoning problem. And that's what we need to work on. And we're inviting too many people to live in a place that doesn't have enough resources for the people that are moving here. So in the end, when, it, when the crunch comes, somebody's going to be hurt. And they're going to have to move away. And they're going to lose their investments. And they're going to have to make all two very serious life changes, like college, raising a family, marriage. Um, you know, so um, it's almost criminal that we don't think about the future and future generations, you know, and that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we're, we're doing it for us, not for, not for our children. We're, we're stealing their future. And I, my, my brain, I tell you, I just can't stop asking. Well, my brain keeps asking the question. So what do we do? Um, how about some family planning? <laughs> that's a real, that's, if we reduce our consumption, then let's stop having so many children. There's 800 million people on this planet. More people are alive now than are, that have been dead for the last two million years. I mean, talk about imbalance. I mean, when my father was born, there were only two billion people. Now there's eight. Mm. Well, we've been very productive on one level, haven't we? Humanity. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we have. And, you know, and we're crowding out the other things that have been here for longer than we have. You know, we always talk about the privilege of first and right, first in place. And that, that's nature. And that's the tribes. And we've actually put them in the background. So it's our, our legal system is very lopsided. It's not really equitable. Mm. We're, we're, we're not share. We, we're, we don't know how to share. Having a big, fluid conversation with John Weisheit, environmental activist who is and has long worked as a advocate for good, abundant water, is a river keeper, Colorado river keeper, and uh, works for livingrivers.org. Gosh, I guess I don't quite know how to wrap it up, except maybe to pour a glass of water for myself. Look, it's right over here. I'm going to just... Actually, that's, that's, that is good, that, that you're telling the spirit world that you appreciate mm-hmm. this valuable resource. Oh, there's, there it is right now. Yum. 
you know how refreshing that is? Oh, so grateful. I can feel it go all the way down <laughs> through my chest. Yum. Well, in this moment, let us both say the thing that we love the most about water, perhaps. Besides the fact that it provides us life. What's what's your favorite uh, water moment? There's an um, impossible one. There you go. <laughs> sleeping on a beautiful beach in Cataract Canyon in Canyonlands National Park. Above Lake Powell. Above Dark Canyon, maybe even. Yes, that's kind of a big nut trap right now. Yeah. I think for me, it's the diamonds that the sun creates on any body of water. When water's... When water sparkles. It's sparkling, in fact, on my dog's water bowl right now in the Castle Valley sun. So, dear old H2O, we (laughs) raise a glass in grave concern and hopes for the innovative genius and uh, heart of sacrifice for future generations. How's, How's that? That's how we do. Very well said, Christy. Thank you. Couldn't have said it better. Awesome. John Weissite, where can people go to find out more information about true conservational efforts on the uh, personal level? <laughs> well, I have a website. Uh, well, I have many, but my favorite, the where I put my grievances is on a website called ontheColorado.org, all one word, uh, lowercase, and just go there, and I have... Um, diatribes and actually some positive things um, that and some history and maybe things you never knew. Things I when I define this, that's what I love about my job is discovery. It, it, there's so many wonderful people out there who know so many wonderful things that we don't people don't know because they, you know it's it's not fun to read a science paper, but when you do, it, you know it's very enlightening. So that's what I concentrate on is the science that that's already been done. Thank you for parsing it for our listeners today, John Weissight. All our regards. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Christy, and good afternoon. <laughs> we turn now to Margie Swenson of the Grand County <laughs> Hospice. Uh, she's the executive director there, and we are so glad to hear from her today about how come November is Hospice Month. Hi, Margie. <laughs> Hi, Christy. Tell us all about how November has been designated, I don't know if it's locally or federally, but uh, uh, Hospice and Palliative Care Month. November, for, for reasons unknown, has been recognized annually as National Hospice and Palliative Care Month. And one of the things we like to do during that time is reach out and educate our communities about hospice and the services that are available to them. And of course, hospice isn't the right choice for everybody, um, but it is something we want people to be aware of at the end of near the end of their lives of the support that hospice can provide both to patients and also to their loved ones during what is often a challenging time at the end of their lives. 
There's just so much to it that people would rather not face at all. And in fact, there are several myths that perhaps hospice workers would like to dispel. Um, one of them is, uh, I think you told me it was the theme or the sort of going motto that uh, electing hospice is not giving up. Right. So, so, the, so the myth is that electing, choosing hospice is giving up. And you hear that in folks saying, oh, I just heard he went on hospice. You know, he's, he's not doing chemotherapy anymore. He's given up and gone on hospice. And I like to think of that as, as a change in priorities. So when, when you are fighting a, a disease that is killing you, um, you know, it might be cancer and you might be undergoing radiation and chemotherapy and um, other or other treatments uh, and those it, it's it's completely fine to do that but at some point but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy and um, it can really make you feel uncomfortable and so when someone chooses hospice you do forego those treatments but you, you focus on, on comfort and on quality of life and on the things that are important to you rather than driving to Grand Junction, driving to Salt Lake, spending lots of time getting blood tests and getting infusions and that sort of thing. And um, so, so I, don't, I don't think it's giving up. It's just, like I said, reordering your priorities and saying I'm the priority and, and my comfort and my quality of life is the priority. Does that make sense? Well, many people would never say die. And so I think for many, um, maybe there is a kind of surrender or acceptance or some other sort of uh, allowing kind of word to describe what happens when somebody says, oh, I am mortal. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, you know, I was talking with my coworkers about this, and um, one of them pointed out that our spirit, you know, depending on your beliefs, our spirit doesn't give up, but our bodies will, in fact, give up at some point. We we all know this. They they wear out or they become too sick, and so again, electing hospice isn't about giving up your spirit. Um, or any beliefs for that matter it's but it's recognizing that your 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 time here is winding down and how how to make the best of whatever time you have um, it's, i think it's also important to remember hospice doesn't do anything to speed up the process of dying that you know we, we don't do that we just want to make sure it's as comfortable and meaningful as possible Comfortable and meaningful. They're, they're beautiful words. I've heard many, many hospice workers speak about how it's too bad people don't, in their journey, uh, elect it sooner, palliative care. What do you think uh-huh. about that? Yeah, I think there's this misconception that hospice is for those last few days of life. And actually, anyone is is eligible with if if a doctor thinks they may die in the next six months 
Um, and the nice thing about having that time and getting a hospice earlier is you get, excuse me, the support of our whole team. You get our, not only the doctor and the nurses, but also the chaplain, spiritual support. You get the social workers and emotional and psychological support. And this is not just for the patient. It's also supporting the family and, and then taking some of those that uh, that care off of the family and giving it to the other folks allows the family to have more time, um, so and be less burdened by by um, various needs of the patient. Does mm. that make sense? Yes. Now you've been working as the director of Grant County Hospice for a little while now, haven't you? I have. It's been a little over three years, and I worked in hospice for a while before I became the director. And when you see people in their last weeks, months, sometimes as much as a year or two, uh, what do you notice about... Do do you notice anything common uh, besides the passing itself? Uh, that's all, you know, all of us, everything, yeah. But uh, is there is there something that that you notice that patients um, do right right before they go? Not physiologically, but do you notice something? Right. A human thing? Right. I don't know. I, I know patients that seem to want to connect one last time with family members. Um, and you know that's not surprising to me that that we want or or, or close friends. It, does, it doesn't have to be a blood relation or relationship. Um, and and yeah, I I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure I can say that I've seen any real commonalities among folks. Yes. Well, comfort and meaning, comfort and meaning. And and how to approach that as a team is of interest to me. For full disclosure, I I work as a colleague with Margie as the Grant County Hospice Chaplain. And for further information, uh, Grant County Hospice is not the only hospice here locally. Uh, There is, Margie, help me. Um, so there are two hospices in Moab. There's there's Grand County Hospice, which I'm part of, and also Community Nursing Service provides hospice services here in Moab. And at one time, and, there was wasn't there a VA? Uh, the VA. So I should clarify that the hospice is typically performed at home. So that's the idea. Most people would say, I'd much rather be in my house with my family and my pets and my stuff than in a hospital room or in an institution. So um, hospice is generally provided in the patient's home. And it's just that these two agencies, Grand County Hospice and Community Nursing Service, are the ones that provide it. But yes, the VA would then contract with one of one of the hospices to provide services the department of labor for some folks um with what we call uranium benefits um some of those folks also get hospice but they would get them with one of our agencies it's just so good to know that there are many people who are there to be with and for uh the dying and the family and loved ones of them 
part of hospice involves providing grief and bereavement support to uh, caregivers after a patient has passed um, for up to 13 months. So that can be a great support for, for family members. Yeah, because grief comes out no matter what. You're just over there over by dairy trying to pick up some cheese and then it hits you. So um, it's great to know it's right there. For Grand County Hospice itself, if people want further information, I know there's online through Moab Regional. You know, you can click through the tabs there. But is there a specific uh, website or a number people can call? They can always call the Grand County Hospice um, office number, which is 435-719-3772, or you can call the hospital and ask to be connected to hospice. And and is there a consult that you can do? Like if somebody is like, oh, it looks it looks bad. <laughs> we don't know. Can you help, or do people yeah, need to? Yeah, I love meeting with folks, even if they aren't sure they want hospice. Even if they decide they don't want hospice, I love to just educate people on what choices they have. And um, it's healthcare. I don't I don't want to sell somebody something they don't want. And. Um, so I'm always happy to consult with folks, provide information. There's no charge, no obligation, just um, just a chance for people to get their questions answered. So when they when they want uh, hospice or if maybe they never do, they know what what they're choosing or not choosing. Okay, lastly, and you're so good for spending a minute here with the with me and with the Moab listeners, and it has to do with grief at the holidays and even the memories of those who aren't with us. And and further, the people that seem to die in greater numbers sometimes during the holidays. Is that true or is it um, not true? Is that a myth? You know, I haven't. I, it does seem to me that people sometimes die right or right around the holidays i have never seen any actual uh research or or tallies it just it, it but it feels that way and maybe that's important enough and and it can be a hard time for for family members who've lost someone even if they didn't lose them around the holidays because holidays is often a t- holidays are often a time when you gather with close friends and family members um and in some years we've we've had an event um called blue christmas and i don't know if that event will happen this year to help folks who are dealing with a great time loss during the holidays Ansha roth has a a grief group it doesn't have to do with the holidays but they meet twice a month that is, I believe, free and open to the public, to anyone who is grieving. The great grief counselor. Yeah, we're so lucky to have her and uh, all the other professional staff that that are available, and the volunteers that are so great. I, I just think it's a, yeah, a wonderful asset. Thanks for sharing more information about it. Yeah, thank you very much, Christy. I really enjoy talking with you.